At the start, I have to say what I know many of you have on your hearts, that it has been a horrific week for regular people on the ground in Israel and Palestine, where atrocities and suffering beyond words have happened on both sides. And it's been a heartbreaking week, hasn't it, for anyone who cares about peace and justice. And rightfully, we fear for where this violence will lead. I don't have anything particularly wise to say about this, nor do I have the heart to say more than a few words. I only know that we are called to stand for peace and for justice wherever and whenever we can to resist the urge to take sides or seek the false peace of neutrality or the fake peace of just looking away. I take hope from people and organizations who have been working for peace in the Middle East, like the Parent Circle, a group of Palestinian and Israeli families who began reaching out to one another almost 30 years ago because what they had in common was their children had been killed due to the violence. And they said, enough. Enough death, enough bereaved families. These parents concluded that the only way forward was through a process of reconciliation. Reconciliation between nations, they say, is a prerequisite to achieving a sustainable peace. And they know under firsthand what the leaders need to learn, that violence only creates more violence, that the way forward has to be through justice and reconciliation. So now I ask you to make a little hard pivot with me back to the fall of 2000. If I threw out a number like that, somebody threw out to me, I wouldn't be able to remember it. But maybe you can remember what you were doing in the fall of 2000. You know, that now kind of unnecessary fear about Y2K had faded into the, into the rearview mirror. Um, I only really remember one main thing, but it was kind of taking over my life in those days, was I felt this call to head off to theological school, which had kind of turned my life upside down. And one day that fall, I was attending visiting day for prospective students at Harvard Divinity School down in Cambridge which is a place that many UUs over the years have prepared for ministry. More than once that day, I heard by the different presenters the phrase, rigorous academics. And that was never how I imagined my path toward ministry. <laughs> Talking with a friend of mine who was in her first year there, I must have expressed my sense that, yeah, this doesn't feel like the right place or the place I'm meant to go. And she said, you could check out Episcopal Divinity School, just 10-minute walk over that way. 
they have these big round tables in their refectory, which I think are a symbol of the kind of community they are trying to create there. I actually hadn't considered EDS because of that word Episcopal. I'd left that tradition a few years before for this one. But I went to visit, and I found myself drawn to this seminary and excited by this seminary which centered anti-racism and anti-oppression work, which had a program of study in feminist liberation theology, which I'd never heard of, which welcomed people from a diversity of traditions. They had at least one UU there already. And my friend was right. It was a vital community that fed and challenged me, that nourished and nurtured my soul. And we had rich conversations around those big tables. And what surprised me and what I loved most about learning there was that those conversations at lunch and at dinner, they reverberated with and overlapped with the conversations that were happening in the classrooms, and in the chapel. And so I thrived there. About a year later, about a year after I started, those old round tables were gone. They got replaced with some newer tables, smaller, rectangular. And, you know, this happens, doesn't it? Things change. Sometimes individuals and sometimes institutions, they disappoint us. But they were just tables. That community and those conversations continued. You could move those tables around and push a few of them together. I loved my three years there. One of the first things I noticed when I came into this beautiful and sturdy building were the tables set up out there for coffee hour. It looked like a cozy cafe. And this told me something about this congregation, that you are hospitable, that you want and need ways to see and hear one another, that you're good at feeding people. I wonder if you know the expression, a third place. It comes from a book written several years ago whose title always attracted me. It's called The Great Good Place, written by the sociologist Ray Oldenburg. And he says, we spend most of our time at home and at work. These are the first and the second places. But he says we need a third place. And this third place could be a cafe or a coffee shop a bookstore or a bar, a hair salon, a barbershop, maybe even a church, right? I was looking at a conversation the other day online about this, and somebody started talking about St. Arbuck's. You ever heard of St. Arbuck? <laughs> that is a place that set out to be a third place. And don't our souls hunger for the kind of camaraderie and conversation that these places invite. Some aspects of a third place are that it's accessible, 
It doesn't care about your social class. It's comfortable and unpretentious. You're not required to be there. You go because you want to. It has regulars, and these regulars are ready and glad to welcome newcomers and help them find their place there too. The mood is relaxed and even playful. Thinking about the conversation this morning, it's not just all old-fashioned music. <laughs> and it's open to new kinds, so yeah, we could do that more. It's a home away from home. We need these kinds of third places, don't we? For the comfort and the connection they provide. And a civil society and our democracy depend on these places for the community and the strengthening of the social fabric that they provide. Our UU tradition with its openness to theological diversity and its invitation to search for truth and for meaning. Is that what you said this morning? It's like we coordinated, but we didn't. Kind of, but. This makes us a third place, and a good place, right? Where people can make deep connections and do their own work and heal from wounds from the past and find a spiritual home. You heard this in Reverend Rosemary Bray McNatt's telling of her story. How as a girl, she was drawn to church and its promise, but how she got burned by the patriarchy that said, oh no, you will never serve at this altar. Even at 10, she says, and I love this, I was vibrating with rage. I vowed never to belong to a church again. But life, thankfully, has all kinds of surprises for us, doesn't it? Years later, she met a guy who wanted her to go to church with him, and they got married in that church later, and she says she found the rest of her life. That moves me so much. It was at once the last thing I expected and the thing I most wanted. It was in a liberal religious sanctuary that I began to heal. It was among our people that I began to hope. It was through their affirmations that I came to understand God's call and embraced in myself what they saw and God saw in me, the capacity for our liberal ministry. On, throughout this year, I want to talk about ministry as wider and more shared than you might imagine. And I might have to return to Rosemary Bray McNatt because that experience of it's not something one does, the, the community lifting up and seeing sometimes our ministries and our gifts when we can't see them ourselves is such a part of that call. Rosemary's story doesn't end there, though. She served as a parish minister down in Brooklyn for 13 years. She started doing some writing. She, before she went into the ministry, she was a writer and editor, and so she did that on a national level for our denomination. 
And for years now, she's been the president of the UU Seminary out in Berkeley, California. Rosemary is a black woman. And she says over the years in our tradition, at least to some degree, I believe, because of that perspective, in our mostly white denomination, she says she's changed. She says, what was once for me a source of wonder has become in these intervening years more nuanced. I am not yet jaded, but I am close. I am, however, long past being ready for genuine change. I love that she believed in change when she was a little girl, and it's still there in her, and she is lifting that up, a, a voice we need to hear. And you probably know this, but human institutions, by they, their nature, they are systems that are resistant to change. It's not like people are bad, but it's what happens when we put institutions together. There's something in the system that resists change. Do you know that joke about how many church folks does it take to change a light bulb? Change? Change? <laughs> but you know the church, to be true to its calling, has to change, has to adapt, has to grow. It can be tempting once you find a place that feels like home, that feels comfortable to you. You want things to stay the same, right? You, without even realizing you're do, doing it, might resist change. I love those big round tables, and I was pissed when they disappeared. Change can feel risky and threatening, like the rug is getting pulled out from underneath you, right? But a lively and liberating third place especially when that place is a faith community, is not meant and is not content to just be a place of comfort and connection as important and good as those things are. A healthy sense of belonging is supposed to be a launching pad for what's next, for leaning in more and living in more fully and deeply to these lives we have been given and that we are meant to live for the liberation that we are here to claim and to share. I hope that this church lights a fire in you that stirs you up and that sends you out, that burns brightly enough in our hearts that it does light us up and empower and encourage us to do the work we have been given to do. So, in recent years, Rosemary asks, what if Unitarian Universalism became theologically literate in more ways than those of our forefathers and foremothers? What if we came to specialize in texts of liberation? We would start with our Hebrew and Christian scriptures, of course, because they are our oldest heritage. And I'll just say that I hear under that, she doesn't say it out loud, but the reminder, 
that we should be literate and conversant in those scriptures, right? Particularly the ones that are texts of liberation. But then she says, should we choose, but should we choose to become literate in all the texts of liberation available to us? How many doors might open? What if we chose to inform ourselves more deeply about the liberatory and celebratory messages of the traditional black church? What if we made it our business to view the story of our free faith through a womanist frame, using the parameters of that theology to point our people toward more victorious living? She goes on, we of liberal faith could choose to be teachable. Is that shocking? Teachable. We could choose to learn more from the black church paradigm than only spirituals. We might discover a deeply rooted spirituality that could sustain us as well. And we could do the same with the many expressions of faith that have been proven in the lives of real people right now? What if we became the people of Pentecost with tongues of liberatory fire descending upon all the people, each one hearing the voice of the Spirit in the language they understand? This one in womanist process theology, this one in Mahayana Buddhist practice, this one in religious humanism. Her whole beautiful essay is only five pages. I'll put a link to it with the sermon on our website if you want to check it out. A hundred years ago, Reverend Lewis Fisher, a universalist minister and divinity school dean in Chicago, he said, universalists are often asked to tell where they stand The only true answer to give to this question is to say that we do not stand at all. We move. We don't stand. We move. The the question before us, my companions in this third place we call church, is this. For what And for whom are we here? Are we here to only meet our own and each other's needs in this community inside these walls, as good and as important as they are? Or do we have a higher and a wider calling? And what would that calling look like? In which directions are we called to move? Who and what are we going to serve? There is so much brokenness in our world. It's not likely that we will be the people to broker a new Middle East peace accord. But that doesn't mean there isn't good and important ministry for us to do right here, in the places where we live, where we work, where we have influence and agency. So let us be people who pray for peace and work for justice. 
Let us who are able do what we can while we are here. Let us be people who are ready to lift our voices and say to our companions, come and go with me to that land. That land of freedom and justice where I'm bound, where we're bound. And I'm not going without you. Amen.